Hello, bienvenido, and welcome. My name is Annette Perel. I'm a proud Afro-Latina of Panamanian descent and a doula for over 17 years and mom of a son. I created this podcast to help connect people to other Black, Latino, and Indigenous people in the birth field. I also want my listeners to hear birth stories directly from the parents who experience them. Welcome to the Clear Birth Podcast. Cesarean rates have leveled out pretty much since 2009. However, for Black women, they're still around 35%. So they're still significantly higher. And that, just like with maternal mortality, that does not seem to be accounted for by just Black women having worse health going into labor. It really seems like it's more a culture of racism. On today's show, I'm interviewing Bono DeCaris, a doula for over 15 years. Bono teaches a course on cesarean birth and prevention. She's done a ton of research on the topic, and she brings a unique perspective having spent time working within the hospital system before becoming a doula. Bono, welcome to my podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, no, of course, of course. You were always on my list. It's just one of those things of where we fit everybody in. And you have such a great topic that I can't wait for people to hear about it. So I usually just jump right into the show when we start with the first question. And um, what career did you want to do when you were in grade school, high school and college? I was ready for this because I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts. <laughs> I'm always interested to hear the answers to this. So grade school, I, I don't think I necessarily had a career in mind. I mean, I always loved animals. So mm-hmm. I thought, you know, maybe a veterinarian, but I, I don't think I was thinking a whole lot about it. And then in high school, Definitely super interested in the sciences, was always kind of an ace there. I think I graduated high school with like seven years of science wow. courses. And I was, you know, I was open-minded. I was kind of interested in maybe going into medicine, maybe going into research science, but didn't really feel like I had a strong commitment to anything. Maybe veterinary services was still in there. And then when I went to college, I got a degree in biology. I did all the pre-medical studies. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, did have some interest in midwifery as well. And and after school, I went and worked as a volunteer doula at Long Island College Hospital for a couple months. And I also in the summers in college, I would work for a pediatrician, I worked for an obstetrician's office to kind of see what is the day to day work like in this profession? Is this something that I will feel like I love my job. I don't need to get away from my job. Like, I don't want to live just for my two-week vacation. Mm -hmm. And I decided it was not for me because I felt that patient autonomy was not always being respected. And I also felt that the, the medical education was extremely hierarchical almost militaristic in terms of like the rankings Mm -hmm. and how residents were treated. And, and I also felt they had to do, you know, things to women without necessarily giving them full information. And it wasn't really the resident's choice. Like they had, they had to just do that. Um, And I also saw when I was a volunteer at, at Long Island College Hospital, that when women came in that were younger women of color, didn't speak English very well, They were getting a lot of unnecessary procedures, especially if they were alone. 
And I felt like going through that education, you know, would I be able to be part of that? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I, I give you an example, even I think it was like two years ago, they finally passed a law saying it's amazing. They even need a law for this, that you are not allowed as um, in your medical training to do pelvic exams on patients that are yes unconscious, unconscious going, going in, in for, for another surgery, exactly. right? They're going in for a knee surgery. And while they're under without having gotten permission, without having spoken to them before, they have uh, medical students and residents coming through, putting their hands in their vagina to do a pelvic exam to practice which I don't think that that's necessarily wrong to do that to someone unconscious. I think it's wrong that you haven't spoken to them about it ahead of time and like gotten their permission. And yeah, I mean, I would consider that sexual assault. That is an assault. It's it's a violation. It says in, in the patient bill of rights that you have a right to informed consent. Sure. And they weren't informed. Yeah. So I thought, hmm, is that the type of education that I'm willing to go through? And I know, you know, I know there are many incredible doctors out there that, you know, practice in a way that really respects patient autonomy. But I, you know, it 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 just it felt like it would be really a struggle for me going through that. And so I went, I looked into um, becoming a midwife, I did all the prerequisites for midwifery school after college, you know, I got a graduate degree in nutritional science, because I got so interested in that, um, mm-hmm. in doing the prerequisites for midwifery school. And I did a whole nother year of anatomy and physiology after I graduated college at Hunter College. And, you know, I started teaching uh, childbirth classes. And I said, okay, I got to make a little money for a little while. And my students would want to hire me to go to their births with them. And after about three years of attending births and teaching classes, I was like, oh, I I have a career. Like I'm here. Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. I don't necessarily feel, you know, the need to move on. And so now here I am, you know, 15, 16 years later, still very much in the thick of it and uh, still a very, you know, active labor doula. When you took, when you started teaching childbirth ed, what childbirth ed, like, was it Lamaze or just general childbirth ed? I was certified through an organization, um, the Childbirth Education Association Mm -hmm. of Metropolitan New York, which is a, a group that was originally founded by women and particularly one who was worked as an activist in terms of patient rights. Yes. Um, And so it's really centered around the idea of information and autonomy and not necessarily around one specific method or one right way to give birth. Mm -hmm. It's more about people being mature adults and being able to make choices for themselves if they're given like the whole set of information. Yeah. Yeah. And so now... About a few years ago, you came up with a course on cesarean. Like, what drew you to that? So this was through the Childbirth Education Association. They reached out to me. I have been on their board of directors before, and I've always um, been a part of their education committee. And they reached out to me and said, you know, they have 10 workshops that they offer. That's that's the education for the new childbirth education candidates. And I and they reached out to me to teach their workshop on cesarean birth and prevention. And VVAC is included in that VVAC stands for vaginal birth after cesarean. And so I've been teaching it for I think this was my fourth year. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. So, and so what drew you to that initially? Well, I'm a huge researcher and I would say um, I always have researched, you know, methods of cesarean prevention. And so I think I, you know, I'm pretty good at presenting complicated kind of scientific information in a way that's more digestible. Mm -hmm. And, and so for this particular workshop, you know, I, I went to work and I probably did about 40 to 50 hours of research on top oh, wow. of kind of my baseline knowledge, mm-hmm. looking at all kinds of different studies, all kinds of hospital initiatives all over the country. You know, there's a 250 page report from the California quality maternal quality care collaborative that mm-hmm. is about cesarean prevention. Um, and they're doing amazing things like they have like this task force that's going around to different hospitals in California and kind of instituting systemic programs to help, you know, bring the cesarean rates uh, down and they're, you know, they're being successful with that. So what, what exactly, what are the systems that they put in place to kind of help to bring that down? So there's different Mm -hmm. ones, right? So, you know, as doulas, as childbirth educators, you know, I would say we definitely have these ideas in our mind about what is driving the cesarean rate. We know that this is not a failure of women's bodies or people's bodies to give birth. Exactly. And that, and that is evidenced by, you know, consumer reports did a a kind of an expose on cesarean where they showed that, you know, your health is kind of the least determinant of whether or not you have a cesarean, that it's much more about where you choose to give birth. And that in the in the United States, like we have a tenfold difference in terms of the lowest hospital cesarean rate, which is around 7%, all the way to the highest, which is around 70%. Oh, wow. And it is not a difference in populations. It's really a difference in the culture of care at the hospitals. And so as doulas and childbirth educators, we sometimes have ideas about, you know, what is driving this rate? We say, okay, is it the hospital setting up systems where they know with a cesarean, you know, it's one hour in the operating room, it's scheduled, they can make, you know, triple or quadruple the amount of money with a scheduled event rather than, you know, when somebody's going to go into labor, nobody knows um, how long it's going to take, nobody knows, so they can have less staff over a shorter period. And, you know, then the person is going to stay there three days postpartum, you know, that ends up earning the hospital a lot more money too. So is there a financial push here yeah. uh, that's that's leading to this higher cesarean rate. There's also the perception that maybe doctors, they just don't trust women's bodies to do this, that there's a sense of, you know, a cesarean being such a controlled event, whereas birth is very unpredictable. Yeah. And does that drive the cesarean rate? Well, it turns out there's a lot of research to support these general ideas and that in some of the hospitals in California where they've changed the pay structure so that instead of paying doctors by what procedures they do during each shift, what, you know, how many cesareans, how many vaginal births, um, they're, they're doing an average. So whatever shift you worked, we're looking at what happened on the labor and delivery floor during that shift how many cesareans, how many vaginal births, and we're going to take an average amount of payment over that, and we're going to pay everybody equally. And what they find is that in a few months, that brings the cesarean rate down significantly. Oh, wow. 
laborist models in hospitals also have tremendous success. And this basically means the doctor does not have to be there through the entire labor. And just to, you know, kind of be on the doctor's sides a little bit, like obstetrics is an extremely challenging field of medicine. Definitely. To be someone who is, you know, has a day of scheduled surgeries, whether that's gynecological surgeries or scheduled cesareans for for good reasons, Um, and then also to potentially be on call so that you're up all night with a labor that sometimes takes 36 hours. Hours. I mean, sometimes labors are healthy and normal and really long. Yeah. You know, that is very challenging. And so to have a model where the obstetrician has support so that they are coming towards the end of labor, they're helping to manage labor over the phone. And you have someone that's an expert, not just a labor and delivery nurse, as wonderful as they are, do not necessarily have the additional training to completely manage the labor. Although some of the ones that have been doing this for 20 years, I don't know, I feel like they should kind of have an honorary degree at this point. But a midwife or, you know, uh, uh, another doctor who's kind of there on call could watch that normal labor as it goes. And then the doctor functions more as a consultant. And we know this model works all over the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, in most of the world, everyone has a midwife. And then you have an obstetrician often called a consultant if there's something that's going on that's a little bit more high risk. And it results in greater patient satisfaction, birth that's less expensive, less procedures, less interventions, and a lower cesarean rate and healthier outcomes. So we have a model that works, just that we're not generally implementing it here. But when hospitals have made simple changes such as, okay, here's, here's um, a, I'm forgetting the name of what they call this, um, a bundle. Okay, Okay. so it's kind of like a clinical bundle of care. So Mm -hmm. one bundle, for example, would be, If a woman's water, uh, if a patient's water is not broken, we don't admit them to the hospital before about four centimeters or the labor is kind of getting active. Okay, so that would be one. And then we um, we have employed laborists like more midwives and more people to kind of stay with uh, stay at the hospital through the labor. Mm -hmm. And just that that two point bundle has has been shown to drop the cesarean rate dramatically in a hospital system. So there, you know, there are known ways to do this. Mm -hmm. It's just not necessarily being implemented more widely, despite the fact that both ACOG, the American Congress of OBGYN, and the World Health Organization believe um, that the cesarean rate should be below 15%. Yeah. And is there, is there um, in your studies, well, in your research, was there any plan of bringing this, these systems around like nationally, or is it just? There's not a coordinated national effort. Yeah. But there, there, you know, there is an effort within the American College of Nurse Midwives, like they were doing, they started a preliminary project in 2016. Mm -hmm. And I think now they have somewhere around, you know, 17 hospitals involved in this. And then California, I mean, California is kind of a nation in of itself in terms of how large it is, the population, the economy, et cetera. And so um, in California, there's kind of a statewide initiative in this. And they, 
you know, they have actually made tremendous strides. I mean, not just in, in, in these hospital initiatives for cesarean prevention, but California has dropped its maternal mortality rate dramatically. Wow. For, for your listeners that are not aware, the United States has a very high maternal mortality and fetal mortality rate for an industrialized nation. You know, they rank about 45th globally in terms of their outcome statistics. And California, you know, has has changed that. So yeah. if you pull out that state um, on its own, its statistics are much, much better. One sad fact, however, is that although their overall maternal mortality across all races is much lower than the national average, the disparity for Black women still remains about three times as high, Mm. even though, you know, their maternal mortality might be a third of the overall um, nation or for Black women nationally, it might be a third for Black women in California, it's still three times as high as for white women. So somehow that disparity is still existing, even though it's coming down for all groups. And we we also see this in terms of cesarean rates. Yeah. Um, Cesarean rates have leveled out pretty much since 2009, like they really climbed through the 90s and the early 2000s and kind of topped out around 32%, which is close to where they are now. They're a little bit lower, but they've kind of leveled out now. However, for Black women, they're still around 35%. So they're still significantly higher. And that just like with maternal mortality, that does not seem to be accounted for by just black women having worse health going into labor. It really seems like it's more a culture of racism or a culture of, you know, feeling more comfortable doing a surgery on on someone or one one woman that I was speaking to about this said that, you know, within a group of black women that she was speaking to, she even wonders, and again, this is just speculation, Mm -hmm. and she even wonders if perhaps it's a it's a way of discouraging some black women from having more children Mm -hmm. that, you know, if they've had three cesareans, and doctors are telling them you should not be having any more children. I thought that was a very, you know, dark thought, but I would not necessarily rule that out. No, I I, I know of a, a childhood friend who got pregnant later in life and had twins and they gave her a hysterectomy and didn't tell her why. Oh, but my God. After she had her twins, she had no yeah. idea why they gave her a hysterectomy. Yeah. And those are the type of stories that we hear constantly. Well, didn't that big expose just come out about the, you know, the the immigrant women in the detention yes. center that yes. they were doing hysterectomies on them right and left? So this is not, you know, it's a dark, dark thought. Dark, and yes. we don't like to think this is a possibility. But there's, you know, the history of reproductive care. And gynecological care for black women does not certainly does not rule out that possibility. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as like, can you speak a little bit to the surgery? Like, what sure. does the surgery entail? Why, you know, mm-hmm. as doulas, we always hear our clients say, I don't want a C-section. Right. And, and then there are other clients who opt in. So could you explain a little bit? Yeah. And again, I think, you know, both both with doctors and patients, there can be a perception that the surgery, you know, gives control. Yeah. One of the studies that I looked at, I think it was 30% of the doctors said that they view a cesarean birth as one that is, is has has greater control yes. and is more predictable. Mm-hmm. 
And that's unfortunate because when you're talking about risks, you know, a cesarean has far greater risks than a vaginal birth, even a non-emergency scheduled cesarean, Mm -hmm. the infant has about double the chance of going to the neonatal intensive care unit right after the birth than they do with a vaginal birth. Mm -hmm. So this perception that a cesarean is just, you know, let's, let's, you know, sacrifice the mother's body to make the birth so safe for the baby that is not actually true. Mm-hmm. Cesarean has significant risks for the baby too. About one in a hundred babies is cut during the procedure. Yeah. It is a very common event for there to be delayed lactogenesis after a cesarean, meaning that um, the breast milk turns from that buttery colostrum to the more voluminous white milk later, maybe mm-hmm. on day five or six. And mm-hmm. that, of course, has risk for the baby in terms of how they're fed and what their weight loss might be in the beginning. Yeah. Um, we do know that the microbial flora for a baby born by cesarean is more similar to operating room flora than the healthy um normal microbiome that they would receive through a vaginal birth. And it's postulated that perhaps that's why babies born by cesarean have higher rates of asthma, eczema, other autoimmune mm-hmm. conditions, and higher rates of obesity, even that perhaps that's related to their flora and how they're colonized. Of course, breast milk is is tremendously restabilizing mm-hmm. for that. And for the mother, of course, it's the major risks of, uh, of surgery, major abdominal surgery. So bleeding or hemorrhaging, you know, is That's a huge common. part of that. Mm-hmm. The blood loss from a cesarean birth that is considered normal blood loss would be about double what would be considered normal blood loss uh, for a vaginal birth or kind of the, sorry, not normal, but the borderline for, for what would be considered hemorrhaging. Yeah, the borderline is, you know, twice as big with a with a cesarean birth. And of course, it's a longer recovery period. And um, I don't know where I read this, but I I remember um, somebody phrased this in a way that I thought was just so fitting that, you know, anytime you go to the hospital and you have a major surgery, you know, you go back home and you have a primary caregiver taking care of you. And like, you know, you have a few days of just sleeping a whole lot and like being taken care of and fed and recovering. And here is where we have a major abdominal surgery and we go home to be the primary caregiver of Mm -hmm. somebody else. And that is, you know, just tremendously um, challenging. And I do also think sometimes doctors have this perception of a cesarean birth. And I was really disappointed recently at a birth that I was at where the doctor in convincing this, this mom that a cesarean might be necessary started bringing up, you know, her vaginal integrity. Oh like, my God, it, that's you know, so disgusting. going to save your vagina. And you know, it, it, that concept of like the pelvic floor muscles and you know, that that somehow you're you're going to be safe, like there's no long term research that shows any greater rates of, you know, incontinence for vaginal birth versus cesarean birth. And we know that with a cesarean birth, let's talk about the surgical procedure here, Mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're cutting through, you know, nerves, nerves that are along what's called like the the nipple line Mm -hmm. in the body. And like where, you know, there is a sexual kind of component here, a sexual connection here in terms of this nerve transmission, 
you know, two parts of your body that are, you know, responsible for your, your sexual response. So we're cutting through there. A lot of people have, you know, tremendous numbness around where that incision is after a cesarean. And sometimes the nerves regenerate, but sometimes that takes years. Mm -hmm. And then the, uh, you know, the skin is cut through the fascia layer and then the abdominals, you know, are separated, you know, down the middle the flap that attaches the bladder. I know a lot of this might be very triggering for people who have had, have I'll had put a disclaimer in the, in the yeah, beginning. That yes. Sometimes mm-hmm. have not necessarily, you know, known the details yes. of, of what happened. Um, the bladder flap, which attaches the bladder to the uterus is cut and the bladder is pushed down out of the way. And then the four inch incision is made on the uterus Um, And the baby is brought through that incision. And then the placenta, rather than, you know, the blood that the newborn blood that still remains in the placenta and the cord now draining into the newborn, as is most common with a with a vaginal Vaginal birth, birth. Mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, that's two or three minutes, at least of the blood, you know, going into the baby so that the baby has its full blood volume. Most surgeons are not comfortable with waiting that time. Some surgeons are comfortable waiting a minute or two, but most are not. So the cord is clamped immediately. And so therefore the baby hat doesn't have its full blood volume. And then um, the placenta is not having kind of a natural delivery, meaning that, you know, the blood, the blood is draining into the baby, which then closes off that capillary bed and helps the placenta detach so that 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 closing off of that vascular bed that prevents bleeding is done in a physiological way. Instead, the surgeon puts their hand in and scoops out the placenta manually. And so that, you know, that has potentially more risks of bleeding postpartum or after the birth as well. Mm -hmm. And so then the baby's out. So all of that takes about 10 minutes. Um, Usually it's done with epidural anesthesia or a spinal anesthesia, which means the mom is usually alert and awake for this experience. Some people have named um, a cesarean surgery that really supports the family bonding and connection and it as a birth experience have named it the gentle cesarean. And I just feel like it's the worst name because (laughs) there is nothing about this that that feels gentle gentle Mm -hmm. to the one um, that's experiencing it. Like when the baby is brought out, there's usually assistance to the surgeon that are pressing down on the abdomen, you know, to help the baby come out. And a lot of women, describe that as like feeling like an elephant stepped on. Yeah, chest, a lot of know? pressure and tugging yeah. and pulling and no right. conversation around these. These are, these are the things that would happen or you would feel right. prior to. Right. So when they're happening sometimes and their arms know. are strapped down, right? Yes. Yes. I mean, your, your arms can be strapped down. They can just be at the side unstrapped. Mm-hmm. So you can ask them to, to have them unstrapped. And, you know, that I, I would say using that terminology of gentle, you know, most, most women throw up during yes. it. They feel mm-hmm. very nauseous. They feel nausea. They feel all this tugging and pulling. It's a surreal experience. Your heart is racing. Like very disorienting. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. a lot. It's a lot. The room is very bright. The room is very cold. There's a lot of people in the room. They're all kind of moving around, but nobody's really talking to you and connecting yes. with you. Yeah. There is an anesthesiologist that's kind of over your shoulder and, you know, they will answer questions and things like that, but nobody is right there with you describing what's going to happen, that this is normal and kind of supporting you through it. So I do think it's a, a really unfortunate thing 
that most hospitals do not allow doulas. Yes, I agree. In the operating room, because the few times that I have been in the operating room and I have supported women through uh, my patients through cesarean, it ha- I, I'm kind of wondering, like, how do they get through this without me here? Yeah. Because I am really intensely working that entire time, like mm-hmm. right there with them, talking them through the whole thing, keeping them calm. Like often when the baby comes out, their partner wants to kind of go to the baby and hold the yeah. baby and bring the baby to them. And I'm like, who would be you know, with, for her. with her mm-hmm. when that's going on. So I think it's really unfortunate that hospitals are doing that. And I don't think it would be, you know, having been in there a few times, I don't think it would be disruptive. No, I don't. I mean, I know there's, OR. there's one doctor who, that we both know, and um, who I got into the OR at Mount Sinai East. And she told me a story right before we went in and I had to remind her like who I was, like I've been doing yeah. this for 17 years, like we're good. She was like, yeah. the doula got up and walked around the OR. Right. And I was like, right. well, yeah, that's not what, but that's not what the majority of doulas will do no. in the no. OR. And maybe there should be some kind of training in hospitals that are letting doulas into the OR with an understanding of when you go in, this is your role. You have to yeah, sit there and coach. You stay seat. in this you stay right seat. Right here, yeah. right? If, if they can educate the partner yes. to do that mm-hmm. within a two-minute period, yeah. like, you know, why can't they explain to the doula to do that within a two-minute period? Exactly. You know? I think that that would be highly unusual. That a doula would get up. And interestingly enough, when I was a volunteer doula at Long Island College Hospital, I had no specific special training. Like I was just there helping people. I was invited into the OR all the time. Wow. So -hmm. it was really interesting that like, I guess, because I was somehow part of the hospital. Rather than, you know, I was I could hang out at the nurses station. I overheard all kinds of interesting (laughs) conversations that really gave me an education of what's going on behind the scenes Mm -hmm. in a labor and delivery floor. Yeah. So coming back. Okay. So the baby is out. Yes. And then the, the team is closing the mother back up. And so that includes many layers. And this is where I've spoken to, you know, a few in, in researching this, uh, workshop, I, I reached out to some, some surgeons, some obstetricians that I know well and asked them more about what is the surgical technique. Yeah. And what I discovered is that in the, through the 90s, the surgery started becoming much faster. And mm-hmm. that probably related to the fact that the cesarean rate was getting really high. Yeah. And most of these hospitals, they they want to clear the ORs quickly. quickly. Most mm-hmm. hospitals, these major urban hospitals in New York City, obviously, it might be very different when you're dealing with smaller hospitals, but these are all very big hospitals. They usually have three operating rooms for labor and delivery for yeah. cesareans. And they try to leave one room empty all the time so that basically if there's something very urgent that happens, there's an open OR. Mm -hmm. So what this means is that you have these two ORs going and one of them has to clear before you can put in another person for something like a failure, you know, the labor's not moving fast enough or it's a scheduled surgery or something like that. And so there's this incentive you know, to save five minutes here, to save three minutes there. And so the way that the surgical technique started being done was much faster. 
And so this means that they're closing generally three layers instead of six layers. Most Mm. surgeons are not putting stitches to reconnect the abdominals. They're not putting stitches to reconnect the bladder flap. And so your, you know, your bladder is not necessarily going to be reconnected to go where it was supposed to to go. go. Like, you know, the, the layers aren't Mm -hmm. being closed so that the, the loose ends can end up healing is something that they're not necessarily supposed to heal to like your intestines or, you know, something else. And that's why we see that, you know, a, a, a cesarean in general is a fairly safe operation mm-hmm. as operations go. I don't mm-hmm. want to want to make it seem, you know, like this is an extremely scary thing when we're comparing it to vaginal birth. Yes, there are significantly more risks with a cesarean birth, but a vaginal birth is not a procedure. Yes. You know, this yeah. is just a normal event, a normal healthy capacity of a person's body and certainly as a major surgery barring something really going wrong is much more dangerous than that. But when we're comparing cesarean surgery to many other surgeries that people have, it is like a stomach surgery or lung surgery or heart, like it is a very safe surgery compared to that. That can start changing as you're going into a third cesarean, as you're going into a fourth cesarean. And, and that has a lot to do you know, with adhesions, mm-hmm. like often there, ha- there needs to be a general surgeon in addition to the obstetrician, you know, that's there to kind of handle anything that is abnormal or found that, you know, uh, the, you know, the bladder flap, maybe that adhered to something else, maybe there's intestinal adhesions, you know, there can be all kinds of things going on that now makes it a longer procedure with a a greater risk of bleeding and more complications. We also know that, you know, a cesarean can lead to a lot of complications in your next pregnancy or your third pregnancy that things like placenta peeling off of the wall of the uterus, like abruption is more common if you've had a previous cesarean. Um, The um, risk of the placenta growing through the scar into the abdominal wall, which is an incredibly dangerous thing. It's called accreta. Mm -hmm. When a few years ago, I went to um, the New Jersey symposium on cesarean prevention, and there was a very kind of fireball dynamic nurse there that had been a nurse in LND for over 30 years. And she was kind of taking it on to bring the cesarean rate down at her hospital. I was really impressed with her. And she had been like publishing each doctor's cesarean rate oh, wow. like, in the hallway. And like, <laughs> first, she said she did it anonymously. And like, found it very humorous that some doctors were looking at this list like, oh, who's this guy with this really high rate? And it turned out it was him. Mm. But that some doctors are not even really aware. They're not even keeping those statistics to really Mm -hmm. know what their own rate is. Um, But she said when she first started 30 years ago, Akrita was learning about it was kind of like an academic exercise that, you know, she did. She didn't expect to ever see an Akrita in her lifetime. It was just like, this thing exists. And she said, now they're like seeing that every month at the hospital that she works at. Um, Yeah. And so um, that, you know, again, the risks really get larger Mm -hmm. um, as time goes along. While a first cesarean is is generally a very safe surgery, a fourth, you know, cesarean or a third cesarean may not be. 
Okay. And so having a surgeon, you know, that maybe closes all those layers might make a difference. I even found research showing that the staples that they use at the the skin incision to close the skin incision, they now use metal staples mm-hmm. going across rather than sutures. Mm-hmm. And that you're more likely to be readmitted to the hospital with staples, you're more likely to have the incision open up than with the sutures and that the sutures do take, you know, maybe five minutes longer. Yeah than doing this, this staples, even though, you know, the outcomes are not as good. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, the making the surgery a little better, again, I don't call it a gentle cesarean. I think of it more as like a family centered cesarean. A lot of that has to do with the support that the, the patient receives, Mm -hmm. like having things explained, slowing it down, honoring it as a birth Birth, instead of just a procedure, Mm -hmm. lifting the baby up, maybe having a clear drape so she can see her baby baby just born. Mm -hmm. Some of my clients that have had cesareans, the photographs they can get of that baby as it's just lifted up and, you know, it's spread out and like, it's just that (laughs) raw Mm -hmm. moment that you're never going to get to have that moment again, like they're dramatic and beautiful. And Mm -hmm. for the family, you know, to still get to experience the birth aspect of the surgery, I think is, is tremendous Mm -hmm. for them so that their memories of the surgery are not just around, you know, I was, I felt alone, even though there were people People, there, mm -hmm. I felt all these sensation. I didn't know if it was okay. I was really scared. Everyone was talking about other stuff. I felt like I was not even a body. It was just like, you know, I'm over here. And then all these things are happening to me Mm -hmm. that I'm not even a part of, like, as opposed to everyone focusing their language around the birth, Yes, you know, okay, we're going to start, you're going to be seeing your baby really soon. Everything's going really well. Yeah, that's normal what you're feeling. And okay, we're going to start hit the head is out, we're going to yeah. give it a little pause. And here comes your baby. Here she is. Yes. And, you know, and and having having that be a greater part of their memory of the experience. And mm-hmm. then of course, if the baby is healthy, having the baby stay in the operating room, having the baby draped over partner, the photographs, the, you know, having as much of the, of the birth aspect of the experience as is possible. And then having extra support, you know, in the recovery room immediately after the birth to do skin to skin with the baby, maybe putting the the heart monitor leads on the back Mm -hmm. so that her chest is clear for skin to skin contact, for cuddling, for breastfeeding, Sometimes it's very difficult for the patient to even sit up right after the, mm-hmm. the birth. So it's it's really important for breastfeeding support, you know, to be a more integral part of the recovery room. And I, yeah. I don't see that happening. I see that. And, I, and it is not a fault of the nurses because no. when you have somebody coming out of the operating room, you know, your priority is, you know, you've got a healthy baby, the yes. baby's doing okay, your priority is making sure that this person is not bleeding too much, mm-hmm. their heart rate is good, their blood pressure yes. is good, that their body is stabilized. And you've got three other people in there, mm-hmm. or two other people in there yeah. that you also have to make sure that's happening for. So how are you supposed to now spend 30 minutes you know, saying, Oh, look at, you know, look at your baby starting the yes, root. They're exactly. starting to, let me see if I can help them latch. And like, yeah. 
you know, really helping this person, then it's an impossibility to yeah. ask that from the nurses. So I wish that they just had a lactation person assigned to the recovery room. Yeah, that would be helpful as well. That could go, you know, doesn't even necessarily need to be an IBCLC or, no. you know, the highest credential. It could be a, a lactation counselor. It could mm-hmm. be a postpartum nurse that has yeah. a CLC credential that's now just assigned you know, to the recovery room, because that is tremendously needed in in that recovery room. I I wish that they would set up that system. Yeah, sometimes I've been able to have nurses when they can, like we ask if we can get skin to skin in the OR, and a couple of them have been able to do that. Or sometimes they come out and the baby's already nursing because they had the skin to skin in the OR, which is great when we can get it. But I tell them that's not something that they should expect right away because, because for that same reason, that nurse's responsibilities are heightened and she has so much to do when she gets out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what do you find after doing all of this research and teaching this course is like the best avenue for your clients to take in preventing the first cesarean? Yeah, I tell them to show their their doctors that they're educated. Mm-hmm. You know, again, from from my very first experiences as a volunteer doula all the way through until now, patients that are highly educated and show their doctors that they're thinking um, and that they're reading and they're researching, I think doctors are going to be less likely to kind of suggest flippant, you know, kind of uh, cesareans when they know somebody has a strong commitment to a vaginal birth and they're going to be asking a lot of questions. I, there is a, a summary from Choices in Childbirth that summarizes the the 2014 paper by ACOG and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine on preventing the primary cesarean that talks about what doctor's guidelines should be around cesarean, things such as if the baby is breech, offer, you know, a, a version, version. To try mm-hmm. to turn the baby. If they're twins, you know, intend to have a vaginal birth. Yeah. If if it's failure to progress, we need to see at least these parameters before we're saying it's it's too slow. So having a having a rough idea of those guidelines that your doctor should be following, and maybe even taking that summary mm-hmm. into a prenatal visit or asking your doctor, you know, what practices do you, are you employing in, in, in your practice to try to bring your cesarean rate lower? Yeah. What have you found really works? Talking to them about the pushing stage. What are some strategies that you use to try to ensure, you know, a lower cesarean rate? Yeah. One hospital started in, in California, started instituting a requirement that each cesarean required a second opinion in real time from another attending doctor that was in L&D then. Mm. And they found that this really helped. The the old procedure at that hospital was that they would review cesarean cases. Like at the end of the week, they would all sit down together and say, was this needed or was that needed? And and like that brought the cesarean rate down a little bit. But the real time in the moment second opinion was much more effective because in that case, like, you know, how many other patients the doctor has, you know, how many, you know, how long they've been like, it's a, it's more like, is this really about medical care? Is this a, a, a human being? you know, that's trying to do their best, Mm -hmm. but maybe has been up for 25 hours and has three other patients they're also trying to take care of. And maybe their brain is not quite working at 
at the top level for this individual patient. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you can't always be perfect. And having that second opinion there, you know, two brains are better than one. So yeah. why not? Right. Yeah. And I, I remember hearing about this a long time ago when my, my aunt who had her first baby at the Elizabeth Seton childbearing center, Oh yeah. which, you know, has since closed. Interestingly enough, this year, 2020 wow. is the year that we finally had a childbirth center open in Manhattan, mm-hmm. even though, you know, Elizabeth yeah. Seton closed probably 20 years ago. And actually it was, before. it closed. I was a doula. Uh, it closed like the year after. So year so or two, like six, six, years yeah, ago 17, 16 like years yeah. ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did all my courses for childbirth education at Elizabeth Seton. That was like was my, a great first, place. my first introduction. Yeah. So my aunt um, was pushing at Elizabeth Seton and it was taking really long and she ended up transferring um, to Lenox Hill Hospital. Mm-hmm. And who, interestingly enough, was a backup back then. Elizabeth Seton was actually oh, wow. in a different location. So this is like 40 something years ago. Okay. And her husband was, you know, about 15 years older than her, this very kind of buttoned up, very distinguished um, black gentleman. And he had taken the childbirth class with her at Elizabeth Seton. And he really took in this concept of patient autonomy. And when they went to uh, Lenox Hill and the doctor right away was saying, you need a cesarean. There's no way you're getting this baby out. And he said, we would like a second opinion. (laughs) And another doctor came in and said, I think you can have this baby vaginally. Like, let's try it. And it was an assisted delivery. It was Mm -hmm. a forceps delivery. Mm -hmm. But she had her 10 pound, you know, first baby, my cousin, who's now like six foot four. And, you know, I, I knew that story from when I was, you know, a teenager and mm-hmm. I first started hearing about the family birth. So it's funny that now here I am all these years later and hospitals are just figuring out what my uncle knew. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. For then, then. Like, get, get a second, a second opinion. opinion. Exactly. Um, and that, you know, it helps in those tricky situations mm-hmm. where doctors are overburdened and just, you know, trying to do their best and, and, what they found, interestingly enough, is that the vast majority of time, the second opinion agreed with the first, oh. but that the first doctor was much more careful about recommending a cesarean when they knew that, that they would else, need yes. that second opinion confirming it right afterwards. So I've started adding, you know, to my sample birth preferences, like under the cesarean section, we would like to have a second opinion. And maybe it's it's just as important that your doctor kind of thinks you're going to want a second opinion, that you're actually getting it in the moment. Exactly. And then a lot of the strategies around cesarean prevention, you know, I think it's important if you're working with a doula, or you can even just look up a lot of this stuff online, like, you know, staying home until active labor, like those same things that, that some hospitals have instituted, like we don't admit you know, patients until they're four centimeters, if their water bag is intact, or, you know, we're waiting for active labor. So if yeah. your your hospital is saying, you know, if you'd like to go back home, we think it would be okay. Mm-hmm. Like, don't worry about the cab ride. Like, yes. it's probably the right call, even if you're just going back home for three or four hours, yeah. staying upright and mobile, um, being very vocal about your needs, whether they're emotional needs or physical needs, like being a very active participant. And if you have a partner, 
to really let them be part of all the education and, mm-hmm. and part of this so that they're on board and they can be speaking up for you when perhaps you're not, you know, as able to, or don't quite have the energy to. So yeah. we know that support people decrease the cesarean rate, even if they're not a professional, yeah. if you have a professional support person, I mean, doulas are the answer to a lot of this. They're going to drop your cesarean rate by, you know, 30 to 50%, depending mm-hmm. on the research that you're looking at. And that's partly because they're going to help you employ all of those other strategies of like asking all the questions, communicating with your care providers, staying home until active labor, all of those things doulas are going to help you with. And then taking, you know, you're taking those on to yourself. If you're at a hospital that isn't necessarily using those strategies, you can think about using them on your own, like asking for a second opinion, like, you know, staying home until active labor, all of those sorts of things. And then of course, the final answer, which we kind of know is the answer to the entire, all, most of the issues in in the maternity care system, which is just the midwifery model of care. Like we don't have to reinvent the wheel. No, we don't. We don't. We we really just need to, you know, support the education of a mass force um, of midwives. And what I'm really hoping is that the obstetric community can get on board with this, realizing that many obstetricians get into the field because, well, they are surgeons. Yes. And thank goodness we have people who want to be surgeons Surge- yes, because yeah. that is a challenging profession. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we if they could focus on that and focus on the high-risk cases and do you know, learn to do vaginal breach deliveries and versions and twins and become real experts on forceps and vacuums because they are doing those things way more often because they're not sitting around monitoring regular labor. So it's a, a doctor, two doctors working with a practice of five midwives and they're only doing this stuff in the practice for a much larger group of patients that require, you know, that, that level of procedural expertise. And then you have the midwives that are really there, you know, caring for those women throughout. And I also think one of the big issues in obstetrics and in the way that they practice, and there have been studies that have done like anonymous surveys of doctors and their perceptions and over 50% of them will say that litigation and the fear the of biggest... litigation drives the way that they practice. Exactly. And we know that midwives have much lower rates yeah. of, of being sued than doctors do. And that, and partly it's because of building the personal connection with their patients and informing their patients more thoroughly and allowing those patients to make an autonomous decision and not pressuring them in where they're saying there is this risk. But, you know, here's all the information. I'm not perfect. I don't know exactly what the right answer is. This is my best experience and and research-based recommendation for what we should do here. But I, you know, I can't make a guarantee. And having that type of longer conversation leads to patients that are, are not necessarily going to be angry when it, you know, the risk did show up. 
Yeah. Versus saying, do what I say and I can guarantee a safe baby. Exactly. Which you just cannot do. And so, you know, perhaps in, in, you know, a couple doctors working in a practice with five midwives, their litigation rates are going to go way down. They're going to have less time on call, less time sitting around for normal, healthy labors, more, you know, uh, procedures, because they're doing it for a larger group of patients Mm -hmm. for a bigger practice, get paid as well. Like if I I wish that OBs would embrace, you know, this model instead of seeing midwives as something that competes with them. Yeah, that is that is so true. It is fascinating. Thank And thank you so much for your research and sharing that with us. When are you teaching this course again? So I only teach it once a year, Okay. although I am, you know, I am open. I have kind of one version that I've created for the Childbirth Education Association. Mm-hmm. And then I do have kind of another version that's for a more general population. So I have toyed around with perhaps just teaching it as a continuing education for doulas. I think that would be great. Yeah, I may offer it. Especially now. Kind of a couple times a year. It's online. Everyone's online. I think exactly. that would be great. Yeah. yeah. This was my first time teaching it on Zoom. And I actually, I found it worked really well, mm-hmm. like better than I expected. Yeah. That's yeah. great. That's great. The next segment that I'm going to jump right into is daily inspiration. And okay. <laughs> that's what I like to call it. Yeah. You know, I'm always writing quotes on the internet and stuff. So what brings you joy? Huh, definitely newborns bring me joy. Mm. That moment right after the birth, however the birth happens, I think seeing the parents meeting their child yeah. is never gets old. Yeah. Like yeah. it it really is the most special moment in in many people's lives. Um mm-hmm. and so that brings me tremendous joy when timings all work out in life. (laughs) As a doula, that is like the biggest stressor of this. I have someone who's going to be induced this week. And then I have someone who's thinking she's in labor at the same time. Yeah, that is the biggest stressor. I mean, I would say even in my personal life, like just timing of things working out, you know, always gives me great pleasure. And then I have, I have a pretty serious hobby. Like before, I became a doula. I worked on a horse farm for a few years and was mm-hmm. a professional horse trainer. Mm-hmm. And so I still ride, you know, as a pretty serious hobby. Yeah. And I would say, you know, body language, you know, with, with physical communication with a horse. Like, yeah. Nonverbal you know, communication kind of, exactly, right there. Like That's, is, mm-hmm. Although I chatter to them yes, too. Yeah. But, you know, it, um, it's, it's really cool to be able to like read somebody else and read that. Yep. And I, I feel like I use those skills all the all time the, mm-hmm. in birth too. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah, I, that when, primal, primal yeah. communication. I've always wanted to learn how to ride a horse properly. When I was in grade school in Panama, I remember I had, I was changing for gym one time with a friend and she had this huge bite mark on her arm. <gasps> And I was like, oh boy, I was like, what, what's that? And she was like, oh, the horse. And I was like, horse, horse, yep. The horse bit her. And I said, they bite you. And I was done. I was like, that's it. I don't want to learn anymore. (laughs) I was like, I'm good. I had no clue. You know, that's where 
you you know the horse. Yeah. I would, yeah. you know, I have never been bitten by a horse and I've worked around horses since I was 13 yeah. years old. Like again, I know how to read them, but mm-hmm. it's you know, I could have been bitten. Yeah. But also, um, you know which horse you're dealing with. Exactly. And she said she said that novice, you know, yeah, she who said is that. just learning. You are going to match them just like with a dog, mm-hmm. right? Like some dogs are aggressive and require you know, a trainer that knows what they're doing. And there's other dogs that like you can put with a one-year-old baby poking their eyes and pulling their tail. Yeah. And, and they, they are they not going to do, no- do anything. Do nothing. Right? Exactly. So you match the beginner with the, you know, the yes. very kind. <laughs> Gentle. <horse>. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. What's your favorite scent? I love geranium. Mm, yeah. That's a nice one. We've never had that yeah. one on the show. And gardenia. Gardenia. I love gardenia. Yeah, I haven't had that one. I like gardenia. I like gardenia yeah. as well. I bought a gardenia plant and like, I'm hoping it flowers, but it has not. I'm like, <laughs> I'm waiting for my smelly you flowers. No, oh, you, you have to, you know, the thing about flowering pants is that you have to feed them. Like okay. every month you have to feed them. I'm going to yeah. send you a link for this um, I've been super grow. I've got but, the organic yes. fish, you know, yeah. juice and I've been feeding and, it. Yeah, and then, but I you have maybe to. Maybe it's not the season. You, you have know? to stress them too. Like they okay. don't grow because they're happy. They grow yeah. when you stress them out. Like okay. that, then it's, they're like orchids <laughs> in the same way. You have to stress them out for them to like flower, okay. reflower. I don't have luck with orchids. Yeah. As you can see, I have a lot of plants. Yeah. Like, yeah. Orchids are, you know, orchids are, orchids, they're own the orchids are like babies you yeah. have a lot of care and yeah. i don't i used to i used to have a whole bunch of orchids before i had my son because okay. i had the time to like once yeah. a month give them a bath do all of these things for them and they used to flower all the time they liked the sunlight i had the east sun it was great but yeah they, they're their own beast what's a quote or saying that inspires you I don't know if it inspires me so much, but it is one I think about often, which is, you know, and and I'm an atheist, I'm not a big believer, but, um, you know, if, if you want to make God laugh, make a plan. Yeah. But just, you know, this idea that we can orchestrate our whole lives, like, I really, you know, I like the idea of and I am a planner, I am an organizer, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a very organized person. But at the same time, I know if you're too organized, and you plan too much, you're not open no. to when these opportunities, you know, and these connections come your way. Yeah. So I really like that idea of not going much beyond the five year general plan mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and kind of being open to, you know, what's, what's coming up next. That's that is true. I'm a planner too, and I found that I have to just let things go a lot of the yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, 2020 has taught us a lot, right? What? What? Yeah. I yeah. I don't even ugh, can't even. So my next be segment, in the moment. exactly, be present. Like we tell yeah. women in labor, be present. There's so many lessons of labor that I've spewed, you know, yeah. a thousand times that I've been spe- saying to myself. Yes. Yes. Through this year, yeah. you know, stay in the yeah. moment, only deal with what's right. right. In front exactly. Of you. Don't try to figure out yeah. what's happening yeah. way, way yeah. in the future. Yep. My biggest yep. one has been I took the neonatal resuscitation course years ago, and she said, you know, feel your feet on the ground. Yeah. 
And she that, says that a lot. Yeah, yeah. and that's yeah. been my mantra pretty much. Like right. when my mind starts going, I'm like, where are you? We feel your yeah. feet on the ground. Okay. And the taking pleasure in in those smaller things, like really focusing in, like, you know, I have a warm bed to sleep in yes. with a lovely blanket. Like yes. just sit exactly. with that, you know? Exactly. And, and I say things like that in labor, like, you know, you're in between contractions, just feel the contact between your body and the bed, feel mm-hmm. how good, you know, the weight of you feel yeah. the blanket feels like, you know, those hormones feel in the in between. Mm-hmm. So we still have a lot of those in between yes. in the midst of the, you know, the, the hardships of the, of the pandemic and the things we're missing. Yeah, we really do. That, yeah. that, that is a good point. We really do. And my next segment is if you'd like to share your birth story. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I, I can give a little synopsis yeah. of mm-hmm. my birth story. So I was single when I when I had my son and I, I had been a, you know, on the horse farm riding horses until I was about seven months um, pregnant, in which oh. case my belly just couldn't fit. So mm-hmm. um, I definitely switched to those nicer, safer horses. <laughs> and um, although I did actually break a horse Uh-oh. before I realized I was pregnant when I was pregnant. So that's exciting. Uh-huh. But anyway, I left the farm and I was organizing a big conference for um, the city community garden organization. And um, I spent like that last month of my pregnancy sleeping on my friend's um, couch in Brooklyn so that I didn't have a long commute um, from Jersey uh, into the city every day mm-hmm. uh, organizing this conference. And it was a Thursday, my last, my second to last day at that, at that job. And I was sitting at my desk typing and my water broke. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> I guess this is it. So I, I had a pair of pants and an underwear in my draw because I knew that could be a pe- possibility. So I went to the bathroom, I cleaned myself up, I put on a pad, I took some deep breaths. And then my my girlfriend, um, Nikki, who I adore, but she is definitely a high energy, you know, <laughs> I say a little dramatic. Yes. And so I was like, okay, let me think about how I'm going to let her know, you know, so she's calm. So I went, I took her into the office, I said, sit in the chair. And I'm like, Nikki, I just, you know, I want you to come with me to take me to my sister's apartment, just so I have someone with me, because my water broke. Nikki, fell on the floor. Like, <laughs> she was so, and I was like, calm down. And here I am in the person who's actually in labor, like trying to get her calm. Yeah. So we took the subway to my sister's apartment and my dad came and picked me up there um, in the car and went back to Jersey. And by the time we got back to Jersey on the way there, I was feeling some contractions. Yeah. But my plan was to see how long I could hide it before anybody could tell Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that I was having contractions. And I was planning um, a home birth, my mom had her babies at home. And like, this was just kind of the family norm. So I was born at home, my mother was born at home, her dad received her, I was born at home, my mom, my dad received me, that was not planned. You know, they had Mm -hmm. a midwife that never made it because the birth was so rapid. My mom was received by her father, who was a doctor. Oh, wow. And then uh, at home. And then my grandmother, of course, by that generation was born at home. So, you know, and then my son was born at home. So the home birth lineage has never been broken. Oh, wow. So far, you know, um, in my line. 
but I had a boy, so mm, yeah, <laughs> you can still convince her. Yeah, yeah. Man, but you yeah. know, I don't yeah. want to be one of those annoying, you know, doula moms. It's, it's autonomy, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, it's, it's all up to her. Support her choices. So uh, I got there. I was kind of hiding, and my midwife came over, and you know, kind of spent a little time there. It was, you know, I, I told her that I was kind of feeling contractions. It's now about like maybe I don't know nine p.m. or so. Like my mom made a, a nice curry. We had dinner. Like, and then the midwife's like, "I'm, you know, I'm going to go to bed, and you should try to go to bed too." And now it's like getting later on in the night. Maybe it's like midnight, one a.m. And I stood up on my mom's dresser, you know, and I just started doing some yeah. circles with my hips and stuff. And then I felt one contraction that I was just like, whoa, whoa. that's a whopper, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And I was not going to lay down and go to bed. So I went to the toilet and I spent the next three and a half hours or so on that toilet. I did not budge. And they were just washing over me like you know, really powerfully. And my aunt was in there and my mom was in there, the two like matriarchs of the family. Mm-hmm. And oh, they were beautiful. fanning me and just there with me. And my little cat, Moochie, um, was sitting there just kind of, you know, watching. And like, after, after that time, I was like, oh, I want to push. And I woke up my midwife and she said, okay, you're about nine and a half centimeters. Like it's not quite time yet. And she discouraged me from pushing, which looking back, I'm like, yeah, I was ready, you know, Mm -hmm. he was coming. So I started bawling tears. Like I can't, I have to push. Like, why are you telling me that? And she's like, get in the shower. Mm -hmm. So while looking back, I wish she hadn't discouraged me. The shower was actually a very good experience because my mom got in there with me. And, Mm. you know, my mom died when my son was uh, three. So I didn't didn't have much longer with her after that birth. And, you know, she is a huge reason why I became a doula, why, you know, I believe in women's bodies. She, you know, from a very young age, like my, my mom really saw the human body as just, you know, a body like nakedness Mm -hmm. was no big deal. Like it was, you know, I was encouraged to be physical, you know, with my body to love the functionality of it. There was Mm -hmm. never, you know, you should be a certain weight or, you know, it was, you should enjoy, you know, your body and being physical in it. And, you know, she also gave me my love of horses. So we got in that shower and I just draped my body over her and went through the next hour. And I remember that shower making me feel like, you know, oh, I can just do this as long as I need to. Mm. Like it no longer had this urgency to it. I was like, I'm just, I'm okay in here. And I got out and was ready to push and got on my hands and knees on the hardwood floor in front of my bed. And my, you know, my dad was actually on the bed, the person who had received me when I was born. And I leaned over him and it was like this mattress on a flat frame Mm -hmm. bed. And he you know, I was, I was like athlete fit when I gave birth, because I was working, you know, 12 to 14 hour days on that farm every day. Mm -hmm. And he would reach far back and grab the edge of the mattress. And I held (laughs) on to him and I pushed like, (laughs) when I pushed, he, I was pulling him (laughs) off bed. So he grabbed the end of the mattress. And every time I pushed the whole mattress, (laughs) 
was going up vertically with him, like trying to anchor himself to this and the contraction would end. And I would just remember like my eyes were closed. I didn't want to see anyone. Mm -hmm. And I remember my aunt saying, you're doing it, Manu, you're doing it. And I'm like, of course I am. Like, I don't need any <laughs> encouragement. I, I so yeah. owned it. I was like, yeah. I don't need encouragement. Like, yeah. I know I have this. I feel where he is. And I would hear my dad say, she's really strong. She get really strong. <laughs> <laughs> the accent came out. <laughs> like, like trying to uh-huh. hold, you know, to hold me down. It took me about an hour. And then, yeah. you know, he pushed out. And then I, you know, while I was kind of bent over and my eyes were closed, like I realized at like, my brother had come in, my cousin from another home had come in, like my sister was there. There was like a whole room full of people mm-hmm. um, when my, you know, when my son finally came out and he was just, you know, he was just chattering for like an hour straight, not crying, just like, you know, he was telling, yeah, he was telling you what happened. Yeah. A lot to say, a lot to say. (laughs) And I say, I always say like, he hasn't shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I have a chatterer. So, oh, yours, yours beats mine. Like yours was the first child I met that (laughs) my son Siraj, when he met Danny, he was just like, he was just quiet. Like he was just whoa. Like I was like, you met your match. Exactly. You met exactly. Your match. There yeah. is someone who could talk like, even more than you. So what did your birth experience teach you about you? I think it it, you know, I had always been so confident in my physical body. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, I think I've had a love affair with my body and in, in part and and again, not not about how I look, but in part because my, you know, both of my parents really kind of instilled that yeah. in me. And and also my, you know, my experience with the horses. Like it was about like I can, I can ride. I can, you know, I can haul hay bales and throw them. Like mm-hmm. I can, you know, take a um uh a sledgehammer and break the ice in a stream for them to drink in the winter. Like, Mm -hmm. so I, I feel like I always had a lot of confidence in, in myself physically. And I think labor gave me more mental confidence Mm. because I couldn't move. I, I I imagine I would dance my way through labor and I parked on that toilet Mm. and I could not move. And it was my mind, my mental fortitude that got me through those few hours of just like, you know, I would just talk to myself the whole time. Anyone can do 90 seconds of anything. I can do this. I just have to get to the next break. Like it's going to end. I'm going to have a baby at the end of this. And just like talking my way through it, talking my way through it, talking my way through it. And it also reaffirmed, you know, my, my independence (laughs) that I've always from fifth grade, I I'm sorry, from kindergarten, I remember like, Oh, we have to do a group project. <laughs> now I'm going to do all the work and I have to teach all of them too, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um I've just always I kind of I I love doing a lot of things on my own. I'm I'm someone who has a lot of friends. I'm very gregarious. I love spending time with people, but I just also love Your the solo stuff yeah. and I've I never felt like I suffered being being a single mom like I, you know, I've yeah. I've enjoyed that, yeah. you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate that. It was a beautiful story. My pleasure. Yeah. My pleasure. Where can people find you? Where are your handles? Yeah. So my um, my website is fullbirth.com, which is just about to be published, the new updated version of that. And um, I teach for pregnancy and parenting, and I, which is just pregnancyandparentingoneword.com. I also teach for Hudson River Park Mamas which is a, you know, kind of a giant uh, mother's group. I, I do have a, a business page on Facebook, which is again, full birth, pretty easy to find. Okay. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. This was My so pleasure. much fun. I have never heard your birth story before. No, <laughs> no, no. I don't tell it a lot. No. I don't. I think so we need to is. do that the next time. We need to, at our meetings, we need to have everyone. I would love to hear right. everyone's right. birth stories. Like, yeah. yeah, we should do that. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. This was fun. Gracias. Thanks for listening to the Clear Birth Podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find me on Instagram at the Clear Birth Podcast. If you want to send me an email, you can reach me at theclearbirthpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Adios. Hasta luego. Goodbye. Until next time.